Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Bethnal Green service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. It's really great to get to speak to you tonight. I've been at our Stockwell service and our Central London service uh, preaching today. Uh, we are part of um, five services across the city. And it was really great just to see what everyone else is up to, uh, to say hi, to send uh, your love to the rest of Christchurch London. But it is great, it is always great when I speak uh, at different Christchurch London services to know that I get to be back home in the evening. It's really nice to be here to speak to you. And I am going to be finishing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout this series, we've kind of just been given a taster about what the kingdom of God is like. From the Beatitudes, with its paradoxical perspective on who the kingdom of God belongs to, the poor in spirit, the meek and humble, the merciful and pure in hearts, right the way through to Jesus' appeal to build our lives on the solid ground of his kingdom, a kingdom that is not built on worldly power, but on sacrificial love. And throughout this sermon, Jesus is encouraging us not just to appear to obey God, to do all the right things, but that it's all about the heart, about our motives and our deepest loves. It reminds me of the passage in 1 Samuel 16 that says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in this sermon, Jesus was speaking to his followers. Sounds pretty obvious. But they were ordinary people who would have had very little cultural influence at that time. Jesus didn't preach this passage in Jerusalem or in a powerful, influential city, but on a mountainside in rural Israel. And what's more remarkable about this sermon is that it wasn't planned. Jesus saw the crowds that were with him and decided to sit down and began to teach to them. There was no press release. There was no Instagram countdown. There were no sermon slides. Can you believe it? A sermon about sermon slides? Sounds revolutionary, right? This was an unplanned, spontaneous response to the needs of the people at that time. These just ordinary, normal people. Why is that important? It's important because of two things. It's important because the teachings of Jesus are no longer heard on a mountainside in rural Israel. The teachings of Jesus are now the most influential teachings in history. And so the world changed because of two things. One, Jesus rose from the dead, which is a pretty big deal. And number two, the people who were following him, these people listening to this talk, believed that to be true, and it changed the course of their life. It changed the purpose of their lives. Thomas Jefferson called the the Sermon on the Mount the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered. And these men and women took this, took this to be true, took all of what Jesus said, all of what Jesus did, and the cross and the resurrection to be true for their lives. All these men and women listening to this poor rabbi from a nowhere town, they turned an empire on its head and they changed the course of history. And so what I want us to think about today is this. How on earth did that happen? How did this sermon become the most influential talk in history? And is there anything we can learn from them or from this uh, today in our time, in our culture? Now, what I find really interesting about uh, this is the parallel between the context of the early church and our culture today. Uh, Roman society was polytheistic. People believed in multiple gods. They were, they were kind of everywhere. In Rome, the gods were a little bit like Pret in London. It just, se- just seems to be all over the place on every street corner, which is very frustrating. Uh, but there were gods for cities. There were gods for creation, for industries, for different buildings, for families. Even bridges had their own gods. 
Everyone was free to have their own religion or their own truth, and you'd be expected to honor and pray to those gods. So if you were visiting a city, uh, both the social expectation and the superstition was that you would pray to whoever you needed to, both not to offend the gods that that were there uh, or the people of that city. But then the Christians came along, the early church, claiming that they knew the one true God, that all of these gods weren't really gods. And now, of course, the Jewish people believed that too, but the Jewish faith was perceived as being tied up to ethnicity, and at that time, Jews very much kept themselves to themselves. They wouldn't eat with non-Jews, for example, so it wasn't really a threat of any kind. But the Christians were different. People from all kinds of backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, different ethnicities and social status were coming to faith, and so they were in every part of society. And then rather go along with the social expectation to pray or worship other gods, they would refuse. Not only would they refuse, but scholars suggest that there are five key distinctions, five major distinctions that the early Christians lived out. Number one, they were far more diverse than any other group or religion. All were welcome. And we can so easily forget or lose the magnitude of what Paul says, where he says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female in the kingdom of God. And number two, they were more committed to the poor than anyone else. Number three, they embraced the orphan and the widow when others turned them aside. Number four, they lived out a sexual counterculture. Tim Keller describes the culture at that time as being tight with their money, but generous with their bodies. And Christians came along and became generous with their money, but tight with their bodies. And number five, they were marked by non-retaliation and forgiveness. The early church was seen to to do good to those around them and their communities. But despite all of this, the authorities and many in society still saw Christians as narrow, exclusive, and dangerous for believing that only they had the truth. And the irony, of course, is that to claim that the truth is that there is no objective truth, that is an objective truth statement in and of itself. Nevertheless, they believed that Christianity was a threat to the social fabric, and subsequently Christianity became the most persecuted religion in Rome and beyond. Now, of course, the persecution that we face in this city is nothing like the early church. It might even be a stretch to call it persecution. Of course, that's not true uh, in, in every area of the world today. There was a report recently by the Foreign Office about some of the persecution of Christians in the Middle East, which I'd encourage you to read. It's really quite shocking, actually. And I'd encourage you to pray for uh, the church, particularly in the Middle East. And our society is not explicitly polytheistic, but there's this general consensus that people can have their own individual truth. And and whether consciously or not, our culture worships to the gods of individualism, consumerism, success, celebrity, money, sex, and power. And just like in the time of the early church, to claim that there is any kind of objective truth is is perceived as being narrow. And just like the early church, there seems to be no or very little social advantage to being a follower of Jesus. When we say that we are followers of Jesus, or that we think a certain way about life, at times we can be judged, misunderstood, or disliked. There might be a cost for us with our work as we try to apply for promotions, or or try and figure out ethical decisions that may not line up with our perspective on the world. And I know that some of you had experiences like that. But of course, the biggest difference between the early church and our culture today is that the early church grew in a pre-Christian culture, obviously. Whereas we are moving away from Christianity being the dominant cultural worldview. Now that doesn't mean that everyone in the past were genuine followers of Jesus, but culturally, the way people saw the world was through the eyes or through the lens of Christianity. 
Now, what I'm not saying is that we should return to some kind of glorious past where this country was a Christian country. I think we're still recovering, actually, from a lot of hurt and damage that people have experienced as a, as a result of cultural Christianity. But we now find ourselves living in a culture that is defining itself against its Christian heritage. It's taking some of the principles or the fruit of Christianity, principles like all people being equal, or in biblical language, every person, whatever ethnicity, gender, or social status being made in the image of God. But they're removing any form of love, obedience, or commitment to the God who we believe created these principles in the first place. The author and pastor, Mark Zayers, describes this as wanting the kingdom without the king. I've said that here before, and I think it's a really uh, apt description of our cultural moment. And we also find that people seem to have assumptions about faith, Jesus, and Christianity that seems to be largely built off the back of this cultural Christianity that we're moving away, away from. The remnants of cultural Christianity have now become what many people believe, we believe, to be true, and it can be really difficult to break some of those down. And so for us today, as followers of Jesus in this post-Christianized culture, there can be somewhat of an identity crisis. How do we live in a world, in a city, in a culture that is taking many of the ideas and fruit of Christianity, but removing God from the equation? What role should we play as the church in this world? And how do I play my part? How do we live as followers of Jesus, let alone share our faith with people, many of whom may have a toxic view of the church and Christianity? What should our posture be towards our culture today? I think the answers lie in the example of the early church and the text we're going to look at today. So in a moment, I'm going to read the passage and we'll take a little bit of time to look at how Jesus constructs this teaching and then I'll look at some of the lessons for us to apply. So let's read the passage. It is in Matthew 5 and we're going to read from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's find out what Jesus is talking about and get stuck into this passage and see what we can learn. So Jesus frames this teaching with three sections. Uh, There is a description, there's a you are, there's a warning, it's good for nothing if, and there's an appeal, but let. So let's take a look firstly at the description and the characteristics of salt and light. And uh, at our Connect group recently, we were chatting about this passage actually, and uh, one of our friends said that she was having a conversation with someone who doesn't go to church and asked why Christians are supposed to be salt. And that's the kind of question, I don't know if this is true of you, uh, that you can sometimes get and instantly your mind is like going, like, how do I answer this in the most unweird, not strange way possible so they don't just think we are crazy and whatever. It's quite a strange metaphor. Light, we can kind of understand. We can get the, the metaphor there. But salt is quite a, a peculiar comparison to make. Um, I've never described someone as being salty. Um, but apparently that is actually a, a phrase. And I didn't actually know that. And I thought, I mean, if you guys knew it, then I thought it was an age thing that people may be older than me. But if you guys know it, then I'm just stupid. But, um, but Jesus is saying, what he's saying is that we are to uh, embody the two primary functions of salt. Salt is used to preserve There was, of course, no refrigeration at that time, so salt was the primary way people would preserve meat, and it's used to add flavor. And so Jesus is saying that we are to preserve, to celebrate the good in culture, whilst also creating new ways to bring joy and life and flavor to the world. 
Now, we should expect everyone, whether they are followers of Jesus or not, to have the capacity to create good culture because we are all made in the image of a good God. It's what's known as common grace. And so our role is to preserve the good. It's to work alongside those people, whether they're in the church or out the church, who are doing good for the people around them and their communities. And then we're also to add flavor. The more flavor, the more joy. Salt brings out the best in the meat. And I think this is actually quite a challenging one for us. I think the the perception of the church or Christianity is actually the opposite. In fact, the subtitle for the late atheist writer Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, is How Religion Poisons Everything. How could it be that instead of being salt to culture, the perception for many is that religion, or in our context, Christianity, is poison? That's a really challenging one, and one we'll look at in a bit more detail later. What about light? Well, firstly, light adds clarity. It reveals the reality of the way things are, whether good or bad. It exposes and it removes the darkness. And we're to do the same. We're to add clarity and truth to the world around us. And then secondly, light provides direction. It's really hard to know where you're going if you can't see where you're going. And so we are to provide direction to the ultimate light of the world, Jesus himself. But how do we do this? How do we add joy and preserve the good in culture whilst also providing clarity and direction and truth? And this is what I think becomes particularly key for us because there are many different ways you can provide direction to someone. However good the destination might be, how you receive the direction is going to have an impact on you. And there are many different ways to tell the truth to someone. The way in which we speak truth is often just as important as the truth itself. For example, this year, uh, I've been trying to lose a bit of weight. I've been going to the gym with Nathan and, and James. And it's a bit easier going with Nathan than it is with James, but that's, that's all good. <laughs> um, but at one point, as I was uh, just sitting, relaxing on the sofa, uh, my wife, Dee, who you all know very well, uh, perhaps to help me realize that she agreed, she looked me in the eye, she got my attention. She then looked at my belly and then went, boing. <laughs> Never has one word created in me such a remo- an emotional response. Now, she was right. I was unfortunately following the kind of stereotypical been married a few years path of putting on a few pounds. But the light that Dee shone into my life at that moment wasn't her usual effervescent glow, (laughs) but more of a blinding, rage-inducing heat. But to be fair, it was a very efficient and creative way of speaking truth. But in my defense, when you're sat down, you're relaxed, there's nowhere for stuff to go, is there? It's just like, unless you're constantly breathing in, I don't know. But it's not, not enough to know that we are salt and light. We also need to consider how we live as salt and light how we preserve, how we add joy, how we provide clarity, speak truth, and, add, and, and direction. Both what we should and shouldn't do, and also the consequences of what happens if we don't. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. So Jesus is very clearly warning us. He's warning us not to lose our saltiness or hide our light. I think there are two temptations for us with this. The first temptation is to become like the world around us, rather than than keeping our saltiness, keeping our distinctiveness. And then the the other temptation is to hide, or sorry, the temptation to hide our light is that we'd rather withdraw from culture, withdraw from the world than engage with it. 
So let's look at the first one, the first warning, becoming like. When salt loses its saltiness, the very essence of what makes it distinctive, it makes no difference to the meat it's supposed to add flavor to and preserve. The salt is still there, but if you tasted it, you would never know. If you tasted the meat, you would never know. And if you left the meat alone, it would slowly rot. When we lose our distinctiveness, when we lose our salt, we are essentially becoming like the culture around us. And it's so easy for us to do that, to lose our distinctiveness. And I think there are a couple of reasons why we might want to fall or be tempted to fall into the trap of assimilating to dominant culture. And the first I actually think comes from a good motive. It's relevance. Now, one of the the ways we can try to be relevant uh, is with our communication. A classic way that churches have done this in the past, and I don't know if you've experienced this, I did when I was growing up, uh, was to spell things like youth, Y-O-O-F. Has anyone ever seen that? I mean, it's just awful, isn't it? I mean, just don't go to a church. No, I'm joking. Or, or, or kids with a Z, which is a little bit better. I can, kind of, I can kind of get on board with that. But this desire to be relevant isn't, isn't actually a bad thing. But what we need to make sure of is that when we speak about our faith, we don't change the core message of Jesus so that it aligns or sits more comfortably with the dominant cultural worldview. Instead, we should contextualize and make it understandable. And if you want to see the importance of contextualization, check out Acts 13, when Paul speaks to the Jewish leaders in the synagogue, and then compare that with Acts 17, when Paul's speaking to the Greek philosophers in Athens. Paul's communication changes for the benefit of his cultural surroundings, but the message doesn't change. He contextualizes. But I actually think the more pressing issue for us is actually relevance as a way of life. That you can be a follower of Jesus and live the same way as the rest of our culture. I just don't think that is an option for us. Jesus is asking us to be distinctive. He's asking for our words and our deeds to season the world around us. It means saying yes to some things our culture says no to, or no to some things our culture says yes to. If we're to be salt to this earth, we're going to have to live distinctively. The second reason why someone might lose their saltiness is this, passivity. We passively go through life, slowly losing any distinctiveness that we are called to. We forget that we're salt. We don't necessarily do anything wrong, but we just forget who we are. We stop making intentional decisions about our life. And this is something I see as a massive temptation for me, but maybe for some of us here as well. But living as salt and light is not, is not the easy way of doing it. There will be friction, and it requires something from us. But that should play out in the decisions that we make, what we say, how we live, what we spend our money on, what we look at on our phones, what we do with our time. And I was struck recently by the documentary, The Great Hack, on Netflix. I don't know if, it, if any of you have seen it. If you're kind of a generally sus- suspicious type, maybe avoid it, because it, it just won't do you any good at all. Uh, but the, the documentary looks at uh, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and their use of our data, uh, particularly during election campaigns. And I was just reminded of how easy it is for us to be guided by these algorithms and adverts that get us to think a certain way about life or buy a certain product or desire a certain lifestyle without even knowing that we're being led down a very intentional and strategic path. It's painfully ironic to, to, that we think we are free when we make some of the decisions in our life, but we are being led like sheep, not by a loving shepherd, but by some kind of invisible force that I don't really understand who see us as a commodity. It's hard to be distinctive if we live like everyone else. It's impossible to offer the world a different way to live when it's the same way as the world. And it will be even more difficult to share the gospel with people when our lives look no different to theirs. 
Gabe Leons and David Kinnaman explain it like this in their book, Good Faith. Part of the problem is that too many in the Christian community have bought into unbiblical notions about what it means to live a good life. So it doesn't look to outsiders like we're doing anything special. Rather than living as a countercultural community that bears witness to the coming kingdom of God, many of us go with the cultural flow, thoughtlessly consuming products, ideas, and aspirations stream for us in an unending deluge of retweets and Facebook likes. It's like really, really challenging stuff. So what can remove our saltiness? Becoming like the world around us, losing our distinctiveness from a desire for relevance or the trap of passivity. And what about withdrawing? Why would we want to hide our light? Well, historically, I think this is what the church has been tempted to do in the past. Remove itself from culture completely and create kind of Christian subcultures rather than living as a counterculture within the world itself. And there may be many reasons for this, but I'm going to focus in on two. Firstly, if you remove yourself from culture, allow it to veer away from the teachings of Jesus, it's much, much easier to criticize it. If you're on the outside looking in, you can shout, you can accuse, and you can throw stones. You can say that the world is so bad that you want to withdraw from it completely, and and if culture starts to crack, it's not your fault. And to be honest, I think that's how many people in our city would see the church, on the outside looking in, criticizing. But that should not be the posture of the church. John Stott said this in his commentary on Matthew, when society goes bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should, we not, but should we rather not reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is where is the salt? We withdraw to criticize, but we also withdraw because to be completely honest, it's much, much easier. It's easier to withdraw, to live a life of a private faith that has no vision for the renewal of culture and live a life of safety and ease. As followers of Jesus, we're not to assimilate, to be passive and lose our distinctiveness. We're not to withdraw, to throw stones, or to play it safe. So how should we relate to our culture? What should our posture be? What's the antidote to becoming like and withdrawing from? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 16 of this passage, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is calling us to do good and to be seen. We don't run and hide from culture, withdrawing to a safe Christian bubble, but we're seen in every part of it, from the halls of power to the streets of the poor. Not seeking not seeking to gain Paris as some kind of way to gain cultural authority, but to serve doing good for the people and the communities around us. We let Jesus, the light that is in us, be seen through our presence in and our service to our city. If this was our posture, it has the potential to change everything. It means that when God places a vocation or a career or a community on our heart, it gives us the mandate to go for it. Now, For some of us, like it was for me, that will mean giving your life to working for the church or in some form of ministry. But for most of us, that actually means committing to a vocation or a sector outside of the church. And that is a beautiful thing. And as a church, we will try to help you and honor that as much as we can. As a church, we believe that if followers of Jesus were in every part of culture, that would be a very, very good thing. If you feel feel a call to the arts, go for it. Or a call to change the purpose of business, go for it or politics, or education, or family, or community life, then go for it. 
If we're to be salt and light, it, doesn't, it means that we can't just stay within the walls of the church. We have to be seen and do good in our city. I remember in one of my previous jobs, um, on a few occasions I would bump into this guy that I'd never worked with before uh, or ever spoken to. Uh, and every time he greeted me like we were old friends. Uh, and it sounds, like, it sounds quite creepy and a little bit kind of socially unaware, but it wasn't at all. He knew exactly what he was doing and it was always really genuine. And he didn't just do this with me. He would say hi to everyone. He would ask about their lives, how they were doing. And it stuck out so much in the cynicism of my day-to-day work and the loneliness that can come with working for a large organization. And one day, just before I was moving on from this company, I noticed a poster for the Christian Fellowship of that company. It caught my eye because I wasn't even aware that it existed. And there was a photograph of that guy who stood with a few other people asking or inviting people to join them. His posture as a follower of Jesus was be seen and do good. He didn't allow the cultural norm of head down, get to the lift, be in your own world and get a jump start on your emails to define his day. And I can't help but think that this random colleague, who I don't even know the name of, made more of an impression on people with just a few interactions than I had with multiple. How can we be seen and do good in our culture today? Well, if there's one theme that runs consistently throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is that our motivation is more important than our action. The motivation behind our presence in the world and our good deeds are not for us to reclaim some kind of cultural power. It's not so that people will look at us and think how great we are. This is not for our glory or our power or even our influence. This is for his. And one of the dangers of this kind of passage is that we can justify our pride or our rudeness or our anger at the world by saying we're bringing light, we're bringing truth. But our motivation for any action taken or word spoken has to come from love. Otherwise, it is good for nothing. The motivation for all that we do in this world is personified in the character of Jesus. The motivation is this. It's sacrificial love. Andy spoke about this right at the start of this series when he spoke on the Beatitudes, and I think it's entirely appropriate that as we end this series, we come full circle. Sacrificial love for our world and our God. And this is the example left to us by the early church. At that time, there were no institutions or protections for the most vulnerable in that society. The sick and the dying were routinely left on the streets to die, as were unwanted children. But the biblical concept of Imago Dei, that everyone is made in the image of God, put a change to that. And Christians took it upon themselves to love sacrificially, caring for the sick, the vulnerable, and the dying. Prominent historian of medicine, Henry Sigrist, wrote that Christianity introduced the most revolutionary and decisive change in the attitude of society toward the sick. Sacrificial love was at the heart of the early church. And in a culture dominated by individualism and consumerism, where we're so often told that, to focus on, that, that we need to focus in on me, that to flourish in life we look deeper within ourselves, the most countercultural thing we could do is love sacrificially, even if it comes at a cost, even if that love isn't returned to us. And that is really, really hard to do. But that should be no surprise to us, because that is the way of Jesus. It is the path that he has already taken on our behalf. He didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to die. He chose to. Because his deepest deepest desire, his love for the Father, for his glory, and his love for us, lined up with what the world needed from him. The death of sin and idolatry and the opportunity for reconciliation and salvation. 
Jesus personifies sacrificial love and asks us, his followers, to do the same. What if the way we're going to see this world renewed, this city restored, is through sacrificial love? What if it's as Jesus said it would be, denying ourselves, taking up our own cross and following him? What if what Jesus said was true? That whoever wants to save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of Jesus will find it. What if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? What if when we give ourselves over to him and to our world, we discover our true purpose, our true calling in life? What opportunities has God opened up for you to love sacrificially? In his recent book, The Second Mountain, the New York Times columnist David Brooks talks about his own journey and the journey of many others who climb what he calls the first mountain, striving after what we want, fame, success, money, affirmation, whatever it might be, but then finding all these things dissatisfying, hitting the valley and then realizing the way to truly flourish in life is by climbing the second mountain, one that is characterized by community and being present to the needs of those around you. And he says that when you reach the second mountain, you stop asking, what do I want? And start asking, what is life asking of me? You respond. If we allow the opportunities that God has given us, if we listen to our life, the places where we live and where we work, the needs of those around us to shape the vision for our life, I believe that that is when he can use us to be salt and light. If we ask God to use us, to use our dreams and ambitions in and amongst the people he's placed us. And Frederick Buchner describes this vision as being where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. When our motivation is solely on our own ambitions or our our own dreams or our own life, when difficulty, pain or suffering comes, it is so much harder to get through or understand because it doesn't fit with our plan or the, the comfortable life we hoped we might have. But if our calling is built upon sacrificial love, we have the potential to reflect the life of Jesus so profoundly. When we look outside of ourselves, when we understand that to sacrifice is exactly that, it costs something from us. It prepares us to step into whatever God is asking us to do. And our world is full of pain, of suffering, and of brokenness. And God's plan to bring peace and joy, life and reconciliation to the world is through us being salt and light, preserving and celebrating the good in culture, bringing joy to life, exposing darkness and speaking truth, and reflecting the beauty of the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who he himself walks the way of suffering and pain for you. But through the challenge of that, through the sacrifice, through the cost, there is the restoration of all things and the hope of the resurrection to come. The early church knew this. It's how this uninfluential, diverse group of people on that mountainside in the middle of nowhere changed the world forever. One of the beautiful things about this call to be salt and light in our culture today is this. We do this together. This is not an individual calling. This is a communal calling. It provides an antidote to the individualistic, me-centered culture that we live in. When Jesus said to the crowds, you are, he wasn't saying this to an individual. The you in Greek is plural. It's you together. It's not a house on the hill. It's a city. We're not, we're not called to serve and sacrifice on our own. We're in this together, which I find particularly encouraging. And I mean this with all honesty. I couldn't step into my calling with what I'm doing now if I didn't know that you guys had my back. My community didn't have my back. I just wouldn't be able to do it. It's one of the beautiful things about the church, that we are in this together. 
It means that we share in each other's success and support each other when things get hard. One of the best ways of, of avoiding falling into the trap of becoming like or withdrawing from is by being in community, allowing us to be shaped and to shape, to encourage and to expose. And it's why we place such a high value on meeting together every Sunday and meeting midweek at our connect groups. Community is built in the slow, week-to-week commitment of being with each other regularly. This vision for the renewal of culture is not individualistic through one person. It will come through communities of people of faith who love and care for each other and then invite others into that community. So here's how we be salt and light to our culture. We lose our life to find it. We embrace the sacrifice and the cost. And know that as Paul says in Romans, suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope. And we know that God's power is made and shown in and through our weakness. All that so our culture sees our good deeds and glorifies God. It means that we're humble with any form of success we might attain. It means that whatever cultural influence or power we have, we use to lift up those who have no influence or have no power. It means that we're generous with what we have, our time or our money, to show a different way to the consumerism that has gripped our generation. It means we live our lives openly with others, together in community, not on our own living our life through a screen. It means we don't get tribal or angry, but model a better way to speak about the issues of our time. And if the band want to come back up, that'd be great. As we finish, just take a look again at this grid. And give yourself just some time to think and reflect on what challenges you the most. What one thing might you need to change or to repent of to be salt and light? Where can you offer sacrificial love to the people around you? Maybe you feel like your life is drifting and you're losing your saltiness, your distinctiveness. Is there anything you might need to change or repent of tonight? Are there any areas in your life that you need to be more intentional Perhaps you've hidden for too long. Maybe it's time to get back in the game. Perhaps there's a dream in you that is lying dormant. Is God wanting to reawaken that in you for the good of this city? Or maybe you're feeling the cost. You're feeling the sacrifice. And it's really, really hard. I'll pray in a moment that God will give you strength. That when we we give our lives over to him, we find life that is truly life. Before I pray for us, I just want to read this quote from the book Good Faith again, just to inspire us to the life that Jesus is calling us to. And I get really excited about this. I get really excited about what we could do here in East London as we plan and dream for the future, as we commit to the area. I just get so excited about what the vision of our lives could look like. And I'll just read this, and hopefully you get as excited about it as I do. When people commit to a Jesus-shaped way of life, they create a counterculture for the common good living their lives not for themselves, but for the benefit of others to the glory of God. If we do this, if we do this, we can reshape the imagination of our culture so that the gospel can renew hearts and minds in generations to come. Will you commit to that way of life? Will you serve faithfully together for the glory of God? Why don't we stand and I'll pray for us and we'll worship. Yeah, Lord Jesus, thank you so much, firstly, for your love for us. Lord, you are the ultimate example of what it is to be sacrificially loving. Thank you so much for all that you model to us. Thank you for this sermon. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all the things that we can learn from your life. 
And Lord, we want to reflect that. We want to follow you. We want to do what you did. We want to love this world sacrificially. We want to give ourselves over to each other and to this world. Lord, we want our life to mean something, to count in your kingdom. Lord, we don't want to live a life of passivity where there's no distinctiveness, no, no difference in us as people of God. We want to be distinctive. We want to be salt and light. Lord Jesus, we want to see the darkness removed from this area. We want to see people lifted up out of the, the pit that they might be in, Lord, and lifted up and find light and life and salvation and joy. Holy Spirit, we can't do this without you. And We ask that you would be with us, that you would give us strength. And particularly for those of us who are struggling, who are feeling the cost, feeling the sacrifice, whether that's with their work or their, their community or their volunteering or their home or whatever it might be, Lord, we just ask that you would give them strength tonight. Lord, that you would give them a vision for their life that is, that is countercultural, that is a Jesus-shaped way of life. Holy Spirit, as a church, we want to commit this time to you. We want to commit our lives to you. We want to commit this community to you. That we want to be salt and light. But Lord Jesus, we cannot, we will not do this without you. We need your presence. We need your life. We need your truth. We need your strength. So Lord, we just ask for that. And we know that you will answer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done in and through us. And we pray that we can continue to reflect the beauty of who you are in this area. Amen.